And so what happens is people go and you buy a blue for two bucks. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Seattle Nice. I'm David Hyde, a politics reporter at KUOW here in Seattle with Erica C. Barnett, editor, publisher of Publicola. Hi, Erica. Hi, David. And political consultant Sandeep Kashik. Hi, Sandeep. Hello. Today's topic, drugs. We're talking about drugs, 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 but we're not going to be getting into kind of uh, Sandeep's favorite brand of gummy bears. We're talking about something a little bit more serious, fentanyl. And specifically, the dramatic increase in fentanyl overdose deaths and what the county is looking at doing about it. King County Council Member Reagan Dunn, who's also running for Congress, by the way, has sponsored an emergency resolution that passed about fentanyl. Erica, can you tell us a little bit more about it? I mean, you've sort of uh, summed it up. It declares fentanyl a public health crisis, sounding the alarm if, if people didn't already know that fentanyl is is bad. It can kill people. It is killing people. People are overdosing and dying. And um, what is fentanyl? It is uh, a synthetic opiate. So it's, uh, you know, in the same type of drugs as heroin, uh, but it's dozens of times stronger. I think somewhat exaggerated sometimes how much stronger it is, but it's uh, it's a drug that people um, ingest intentionally, sometimes unintentionally um, in, in pills that are labeled differently. Um, you know, and that's one reason there have been so many overdoses is people think that they're getting their usual dose of whatever it is that they smoke um, or inject and uh, there's fentanyl in it and they overdose and die. Um, and so that is that is the reason for the concern. Um, overdoses of fentanyl have gone up or overdoses involving fentanyl rather have gone up dramatically in the last couple of years. Um, so uh, it's it's definitely a very real concern. But the reason I say that you kind of summed it up is so they've declared it a crisis. I mean, there's no, um, there's not really a definition of uh, this crisis, and there's no corresponding legislation. Um, and we can get into it, but I mean, they they declared heroin a crisis, had a task force, and made a bunch of recommendations years ago. And the most controversial, and you know, probably most um, efficacious of those, to use a fancy word, never got implemented. So I, I imagine that this is kind of a similar, uh, similar situation where you know they're sounding an alarm that you know, has been sounded for many years. Yeah, it's sort of a, well, duh, kind of moment, right? Uh, you know, uh, I mean, to the extent that it's raising awareness that that fentanyl has become a huge problem on the streets of Seattle, you know, okay, I suppose. You know, and it sort of vaguely kind of directs the county to sort of, and, and county public health and other uh, uh, officials and authorities to just kind of prioritize trying to address uh, address the problems that are fentanyl are creating, but it's really more, you know, window dressing or kind of an acknowledgement of what was a increasingly obvious reality anyway. That said, there's a lot to be said, and I think a lot that's poorly understood about what's happening on the streets of Seattle related to fentanyl and drug use generally. Um, and what we're seeing when we and I urge people to go look for themselves, go look at the King County, you know, just go Google King County overdose deaths. And um, uh, the county public health authorities track this closely. And there's a lot of information there. And when you look at it, it's really both shocking and, and quite revealing. And what we're really seeing is that methamphetamine and fentanyl in the last few years 
have uh, largely replaced heroin and crack, heroin and cocaine, as the drugs of choice on the streets of Seattle. And that has some pretty significant downstream effects. I mean, the, the, the charts are really remarkable to look at. Methamphetamine passed heroin as the largest single drug causing opi- uh, causing uh, overdose deaths in 2019. And by 2022, it's methamphetamine is causing, um, you know, a- almost three times as many deaths as heroin, which has kind of remained fairly steady over, over the last few years. Fentanyl's rise has been even more precipitous and spectacular. And it, it basically... Fentanyl comes along out of nowhere and and passes heroin in terms of the number of overdose deaths it's causing in 2021. And by 2022, it's causing three times as many in a year. Basically, it's now tripled the number of overdose deaths it's causing. It just passed methamphetamine as the biggest driver of overdose deaths on our streets. And so really quickly what that means. I mean, look, I, I have some experience of this. As, as I've said before, I'm a former heroin addict um, and the replacement of heroin by fentanyl has some really significant real world impacts. It's not just that fentanyl is stronger, but it doesn't last as long. And, and the way it's dispensed is different. When you want to do heroin, you had to go out and get $10 to buy a $10 bag of heroin. On, that, that's typically how heroin is sold on the streets of major cities in the United States. Fentanyl now which is ubiquitous on Seattle streets, is sold in these little pills called blues. That's the most common form. And they sell for a, a, a buck or two a piece. And so what happens is people go and you buy a blue for two bucks. You smoke it, say, in a bus shelter. You're high for an hour or two, and then the effect is gone. It doesn't have nearly the, the lasting effect that, that heroin does. And so you need to find another two bucks to get your next blue. And it just sort of speeds up that cycle of, for addicts of sick, need to get high, need to find money, get high. Oh, it's over. I'm getting sick again. Need to find money. And, and that, that thing that fentanyl is creating is exacerbating, I think, a lot of the, the, the negative social impacts that, that addiction is creating in ways that are significantly worse than the impact that heroin had. One other question since we're on this too, which is, isn't, isn't fentanyl also contained in a whole bunch of other drugs? It's not just in blue pills? It's like it, it, laced it, it, into it, other drugs and doesn't that yes, also Yes, I mean, to- it, it yes, is though, though that, that was more of a issue when it was first being introduced. And nowadays, most people who are using fentanyl know they're using, you know, I, I just saw a UW thing that said two thirds of people, uh, more than two thirds of people are, are, Intentionally. Using fentanyl because that's the drug they want to be using, right? So, you know, I mean, I think that although we're talking about fentanyl now, seven years ago, we were talking about heroin, um, you know, overdoses are overdoses and they, they respond to some of the same types of solutions, you know, getting um, Narcan out there, a drug that can um, can uh, reverse an overdose, uh, safe injection sites, uh, safe consumption sites, which uh, the sponsor of this uh, this crisis resolution, Reagan Dunn, uh, very much opposes. Uh, you know, it, it, the fact is it's been seven years since the opiate task force for King County rec- made a bunch of recommendations 
Um, and, and, and we just haven't seen any action on those, particularly the idea of a safe consumption site where people would at least be supervised. Um, and, and one of the, one of the functions of safe injection and safe consumption sites is people are there. They can see when people are overdosing and they can reduce those drugs, those overdoses. Um, and they can uh, save people's lives that way. And uh, when we don't have safe consumption sites, when we criminalize drugs to the extent that we uh, we do, um, people go underground, people use alone, and people die. And so I think that um, given where this uh, resolution, this proposal is coming from, uh, Reagan Dunn, a Republican who's running for Congress on a very uh, right wing for King County platform, you know, I don't think the intent is really to promote, you know, any of those kind of solutions. It's more to promote more prosecutions, more crackdowns on drug users, um, and ultimately is going to have the opposite effect from what he claims. I think you're right that Reagan Dunn is playing politics here. He's in the midst of a of a hotly contested uh, uh, primary race for Congress in the eighth congressional district, and he's got some very serious competition on the Republican side with uh, Republican candidates running a couple of um, Republican candidates running to his right. So I I think his motives absolutely. Uh, in large part are political here in trying to do this. And he's sort of trying to run against Seattle and, and, you know, and that Seattle is too permissive about drug use and this huge fentanyl problem has risen up. Um, so, um, uh, so I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think this is maybe, um, theater more than it's substantive. That said, Erica is putting her finger on a really important point, which is that we do need to take this fucking seriously because the n- overall number of overdose deaths are skyrocketing when, when you combine all the drugs together you know the 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 um the toll uh that drug use is taking not just in terms of the number of people who overdose and die but the number of people who are experiencing pretty serious and debilitating ad- addiction is rising really, really rapidly. And we need to take that seriously and take actions on that. I'm with Erica that we need to take a, you know, that there are better approaches than trying to, you know, criminalize drug use. I don't think that's a smart approach. Uh, But if we want to do alternative approaches, then we need to do some freaking alternative approaches and stop just sitting around and talking about it uh, while the problem, you know, escalates uh, further and further. Well, I think, though, Sandeep, I mean, you know, we we are 100 percent like I think I think drugs should be legal. I think, you know, we should uh, we should at the very least decriminalize them. Um, but the, the problem is, I mean, this is ultimately and the reason nothing's ever been done is this is ultimately a political problem. And, you know, you may not be aligned with Reagan Dunn, um, who, you know, K- he talked to KTTH, the conservative uh, radio. Boy, what do you call those channels? Station. Wow. (laughs) Station. (laughs) God, what am I, a millennial? Um, Anyway, he talked to them and, you know, and said that um, what this is about is holding drug dealers accountable, prosecuting the hell out of those who will violate our laws so they can't reoffend. He talked about locking down the borders. And, you know, even if you don't subscribe to as extreme a version of that as, uh, as Reagan Dunn's version, I mean, right now in the city of Seattle, we are much more on the prosecutorial side of things. We are much more, um, you know, Mayor Bruce Harrell, 
um, the city attorney's office is much more um, aligned with the idea that we need to prosecute the hell out of people who are using and selling drugs, um, which is often, you know, the same people. Um, and uh, and not aligned with this idea of you know more uh, I guess what you would call Sandeep radical permissiveness of uh, of you know not punishing people for their addictions um, you know it's very much uh, a return to this kind of law and order approach to addiction to say you know people who are dealing drugs need to be locked up people well, who first are using of all, I mean I mean let's be clear about what what what's actually happened here right I mean. The King County prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, who's leaving office, and I know we're going to come back to the prosecutor's race at the end of this, but uh, Dan Satterberg has essentially decriminalized possession of small quantities of drugs uh, in King County. He did that a few years ago, and he said he's – and the King County prosecutor's office does not prosecute possession cases or – Really, I don't think they do it much in terms of really kind of small scale, kind of low level street dealing. Um, I mean, I've certainly seen prosecutions for low level street dealing, and people certainly get arrested and jailed for it all the time. I mean, you can right. you can just you can look in court cases and see where these cases go. It's not just that you know it's, well, it's like if, cartels if or, or whatever. If you're um, possessing above being, above, above certain like thresholds, yes, you're probably yeah, you could conceivably get, end up getting prosecuted. So look, and 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 I. Uh, do you, I, do you know what those thresholds are, yeah, though, Sunday? Because I, I I wrote about a case recently where you know a guy got prosecuted for possessing you know just a tiny amount. I mean, in this case, it was crack. But I mean, I, I I think you're exaggerating a little bit the extent to which we are you know a, a live and let live city and county on in terms of drug use and and low level um, drug dealing. Because as you mentioned, people need to get money, right? And so, how do they get money for drugs? They they steal things, they beg, and they sell drugs. Right. Um, and so I well, think there's I, just there's not an understanding of like both sides of that equation and how addiction, you know, works among actual people. There's there's yes, much more this of the is demonization I, of the of the shadowy drug dealer who is imagined to be totally different than a drug user. And, and this is where you and I part ways. Right. Because you have this sort of expansive idea that crimes of addiction. Right. The sort of term of art we hear we hear on the left that there's a we need to have kind of non-punitive interventions in those cases and i draw a big distinction between addiction itself right i don't think we should be prosecuting people for using drugs no matter what drugs they are i don't think that that sort of prosecution makes any sense or leads to good outcomes or good results but i think when i hear people say we should be letting people off the hook for committing other crimes like stealing or significant drug dealing or, or, you know, whatever, because they're addicted. I think that is radical permissiveness. And that's where you cross a line going too far. I look, if, if, if you're addicted and you're not committing any other crimes, you're just kind of harming yourself. Well, hopefully we can find a way to intervene with you and get you some help, the kind of help that you need. But if you're actually causing significant social harm, uh, if you're stealing every day and you get caught stealing, you know, your addiction's not an excuse for that, right? I mean, it, it may be a mitigating factor, but it's not a sort of get out of jail free card, I don't think, and or should be. 
And I think that's and I don't where... think and I think our approach of, of putting people in jail literally, um, you know, for for those crimes and not addressing the, the problem of addiction that may be underlying them is is not working. But it is the direction that we're going in. Um, and, you know, maybe we can uh, we can talk about this more with the prosecutor's race. But uh, but I do think we are in a backlash era where, you know, going to jail is seen as the solution. Um, even though, I mean, even now, uh, and and I think even before the pandemic, uh, people aren't staying in jail for a very long time for these uh, for these low level crimes because they are low level crimes. So the cycle that you're talking about, um, you know, existed before people, you know, before the jails uh, were uh, were locked down to some extent because of COVID. Um, it, it's it's a cycle, you know, as old as as old as drug laws that we throw people in jail, they get out, they commit another low level crime, we throw them in jail, they get out, and the addiction never gets addressed. So, um, you know, I, I think, again, uh, declaring something a crisis is, uh, is, is a symbolic gesture, but we've done so many symbolic gestures without trying anything different um, in terms of the actual addiction side of the equation. There, there are two parts to this and two things that you're both kind of hinting at. There's a political question, which is, how does Reagan Dunn, how does Matt Larkin, how does incumbent Democrat Kim Schreier hang on to this seat? From a Democratic perspective, uh, hopefully you can either prevent a national ban on abortion or perhaps, you know, pass some positive legislation for Democrats, a serious issue, right? Then there's the policy question, uh, which is how do you help people who are addicted to drugs in the best possible way? And it seems like, hey, we're in the middle of this heated political primary. You know, aren't, aren't those really separate things? Here's what we ought to do. But then there's the also the reality of just what do people think about crime right now in a district like the eighth, there is a backlash. Like that's what you said, Erica, there is a backlash. And so what do you do about that? That's my question. I think these these issues are politically front and center and they're politically fraught, which is exactly why you have to get the policy piece of this right. If you're going to go down a, a route of trying to find non-punitive, um, um, you know, interventions related to addiction, then you better get that right because if you if you push these policies too far if you push them past their breaking point which is really what happened in Seattle over the last 2 years then you start to get you know negative effects where it starts to look like crime isn't illegal anymore to a lot a lot to a lot of people when you hear prominent voices on the left uh saying that we should allow people to argue addiction as a way of, um, as a defense for crimes they commit, like stealing, which was something, an idea that was before the city council and generated a huge backlash a couple of years ago now, and they dropped it. But is or, it, Sandeep, aren't you just yeah. talking about running against Seattle again? I mean, I, I don't see how these, and, and, and look, David, you've been covering the 8th Congressional District, um, and, and you know a lot more about this than I do, but I don't see these issues... Um, being at play in that district. You know, what is Seattle doing? Um, I mean, you're talking about a race for Congress. I don't know that a congressperson is going to Im- be implementing, you know, local drug policy in any meaningful way. So no, but, uh, so but all just, the, re- all but the Republicans totally are running against they're running against yeah. Seattle. They talk about Seattle. They bring up crime in Seattle and King County. Look, uh, and, and, you know, part of the eighth is in King County. So and, 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 and people who live in Issaquah work in Seattle. So it's not sure. completely abstract right. for them. I saw some polling, and this was this was pre the Dobbs decision, the the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I think abortion has skyrocketed uh, into a top issue now p- after that decision. 
But prior to Roe, I saw some polling out of the 8th Congressional District. And you know what the two top issues were? Number one, inflation, and number two, crime. And Erica, you're right. There's not some huge crime wave on the streets of Sammamish or Issaquah, though there's, there, I think there is some shoplifting issues and stuff that are, that are happening there as well. But what, what people are reacting to are what they're perceiving and seeing happening on the streets of Seattle. And there is a fear in those communities that the that what has led to the situation in Seattle uh, is tied to the, my term, radically permissive policies that were implemented during the 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 COVID era over the of the last two years. That has led to an explosion of encampments and street crime and street disorder and uh, addiction and drug use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, don't bring that to my community. And I'm voting uh, and I'm voting yes. And that's why you have the governor and Kim Schreier and all these people ru- backing away from uh, very openly the defund the police kind of abolitionist stuff that was sort of front backing and center. Backing away. Discuss- I mean, I, I, you're, I guess you're saying that Kim Schreier should denounce Seattle. And that would be an effective, um, an effective move out in uh, the eighth district. Um, which I mean, I, I guess we'll see if it works for Reagan Dunn. But I mean, the idea that like that Kim Schreier and Jay Inslee have been advocates for defund is so absurd that I, I can't believe you're even saying it. I mean, Inslee- I'm not saying that they have been advocates for it, but I'm saying they are suffering the consequences. From very loud, prominent voices, in they're Seattle. suffering the consequences from disinformation the, the and misinformation from 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 political consultants. You know, pushing this narrative that uh, we actually ever defunded the police, which we didn't, and that we actually ever stopped prosecuting crime, which we didn't. So, I mean, it, I there is certainly right. a narrative out there, but there isn't mm. there isn't a reality anything like what you describe. I think that's right. Like, like Kim Shar is suffering the consequences of disinformation to some extent. But I, I also feel like, Sandeep, you're not kind of grappling with the real problem here, which is that you actually support a harm reduction approach because you think it would help address the problem. Well, is a harm reduction approach politically popular in King County even? You know, that's that's really my question. It's like you have a situation where there's some tension yeah. between what's politically popular and what might actually be the most effective thing. I think both of you aren't that maybe you are, but I think you're overemphasizing right now your differences compared to somebody who like lives in uh, Chelan or uh, whatever when it comes to harm reduction. Right. You both pretty much support harm reduction, right? Right. On the policy front, I think we're I think we're not that far apart on 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 how uh, how we should be primarily addressing people who are suffering from addiction. So I, so I, and I think you're asking a really good question, David. And the answer is, you're right. It's it, some of this harm reduction stuff is, 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 is politically uh, problematic, right? I, what we saw, Erica mentioned the opioid task force, right? The Seattle and King County six or seven years ago formed an opioid task force when heroin deaths started to overdose deaths started to skyrocket. And one of the prime, probably the most, um, prominent recommendation of that opioid task force was the creation of two safe consumption sites, places where addicts could come and use drugs in a supervised setting. These are There are more than 100 of these sorts of sites in cities around the world, and there's a long track record that shows that they have a significant positive effect in reducing overdose deaths. Um, as Erica says, it, otherwise people are using alone and they overdose and they end up dying. Whereas if it's happening in a kind of supervised setting, 
the, they can be, their lives can be saved. And so that was the recommendation of the opioid task force. And they wanted one in Seattle and one somewhere in suburban King County. And you know what the response to that was? The suburbs went batshit, right? I mean, they, you know, city council, suburban city councils in the 38 other cities in King County started stampeding to pass safe consumption bans in their community because there was a there was a public backlash in those communities. So I think that was pretty telling and indicative. And in fact, there was an attempt to run a ballot measure in King County that got knocked off the ballot for re- legal reasons, I-27, that would have banned safe consumption sites in King County. Um, so, I, David, I think you're right. Outside of progressive sort of sort of deep blue Seattle attitudes about some of these approaches change pretty quickly once you get past the borders of Seattle. I, I would say even in Seattle, I mean, we don't we we have we have talked a big game about wanting to do this um, uh, for a very long time, and under the former mayor um, and 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 mayors before that as well. But under the most recent mayor, Jenny Durkin, um, the proposal to do a supervised consumption site was uh, sort of downgraded and downgraded, and eventually it was like maybe going to be a little van that moved around from place to place, and then even that didn't happen um, as she continued to not spend the money that was out allocated. So I think, uh, you know, uh, there is a there is a timidity in Seattle, I mean, and maybe in Washington State and the rest of King County as well. But the timidity here for actually doing anything about um, uh, doing anything controversial about these problems, like, you know, um, expanding access to uh, to needle exchanges, safe smoking uh, equipment, um, you know, actually opening a supervised con- consumption site. Um, I mean, just all kinds of, you know, allowing people to um, to have methadone at home and not have to go to the clinic every single day. Just simple harm reduction things um, are incredibly slow or never happen here uh, because in part because people are so scared politically because there's so much misinformation out there, you know, thanks in part to politicians um, who, you know, who say that it's if you allow needle exchanges, uh, the, the drug cartels are next. Right. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we. Needle exchanges were very controversial in the 90s when they were first broached. We did implement them here in King County, and they had an incredibly positive effect in reducing the transmission of, of, uh, of, of really serious di- diseases like, like AIDS and so on, uh, hepatitis. Um, yeah, I should say here that I, um, I did significant uh, work on a pro bono basis for the coalition that was advocating for a safe consumption site in the city of Seattle, and I think – Erica's right. It ran into it, it. You know, I I did did. You know, I I gave it my best college try, and we ran into a brick wall on actually getting a a safe consumption site moving forward, even in the city of Seattle. I think to be to be fair to the elected officials, there were a lot of issues around it. There are significant legal issues. Remember, Trump was the president at that point, and his Justice Department was making very loud and, uh, you know, probably um, real threats that if a city moved forward with this, that they would come after them like like a ton of bricks and they would confiscate the property and et cetera, et cetera. So that was certainly an impediment. Also, the, there was a $1.2 million appropriated by the city council, but that's not enough, not nearly enough to open. open it's a, enough to a, start. And I mean, and I, well, and I it wasn't think, even enough to, to think, really purchase a, 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 a site. That said, we should have done it. I, I'm with you. We should have been moving forward on this and we should have found the resources and do it. It's not a panacea. It's not going to solve the problem. 
but it is an it, it is an approach that other places around the world, including in Vancouver, uh, have done, and there are clear benefits. Most people would rather have somebody coming inside into a supervised place where they're going to inject heroin or fentanyl or whatever, rather than shooting up in a bus shelter or, you know, in a park. I think that the Trump administration was largely an excuse um, not to do this. I don't think that there was momentum before Trump got elected. Um, I predicted this at the time when I wrote about the heroin um, and opiate task force um, because there had been a heroin and opiate task force before. And they had made a bunch of re- recommendations, not a safe consumption site, but they made a bunch of other recommendations that never got implemented. And I remember sitting there with the report in my hands in 2016 and just uh, just looking at the report and thinking, well, this is going to go on the shelf and we'll be looking at this in another you know, five, 10 years and none of this is going to happen. And in fact, that's what happened. And if you um, are saying that it was Trump, um, what is Bruce Harrell's excuse? Yeah. Um, what is what is the excuse now that yeah. it's you know, that it's going to be so difficult because of the uh, the federal administration that's gone. So so now what's the excuse? Is it that we have a, a tough budget and there's not enough money to actually implement it? I think that the real reason is that politicians don't want to take the political risk of seeming like they are being, you know, not sufficiently tough on crime since tough on crime is sort of um, the vibe everyone is going for right now. So I, I just I just think that it doesn't matter who's in power at the federal level. Um, this is not something that our timid local politicians are ever going to take action on. You know, unless unless there is a real sea change and not the kind of fake sea change, um, you know, that happened briefly in 2020. And I'm not saying that the protests were fake. I'm not saying that the um, the impetus and the impulses were fake. I'm saying that politicians sort of fainted toward having a uh, a less punitive approach to crime and punishment and to to things like drug use and and drug laws. And uh, it never actually did anything. And now we're right back in the backlash era. Yeah, well, I will. I, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I look, we polled in 2017, back when I 27, the the effort to try to ban safe consumption sites in King County was was gearing up. We polled on it, and what we found is the public was way ahead of the politicians on approaches like safe consumption sites. Seventy percent of voters in the city of Seattle opposed banning the opening of safe consumption sites. There was other polling that showed more than 60% in the low 60s in kind of outright support for opening a safe consumption site in the city of Seattle. So I think there was a moment in time where if there had been stronger political leadership in the city of Seattle, and and yeah, and and just said, okay, we're going to give the finger to the Trump administration on this, we're moving forward, it's, the public support w- would have been there. Now, I think it's a more challenging time now. Um, you know, the mood has shifted somewhat. We've been talking about you know, various aspects of, I don't know whether I'd call it a full-blown backlash, but there's definitely been a recalibration in public attitudes, um, which goes back to my point. Like, you know, when we stopped all encampment cleanups or sweeps or whatever you want to call them for two years and encampments grew across the city of Seattle and became more associated with, with various sorts of criminal behavior, you know, that policy turns out it wasn't really sustainable politically, right? And it's bled over into sapping support for harm reduction interventions like safe consumption. And that's why that goes to my point that I think you have to calibrate the policy right on these things because they are politically fraught. And if you go too far, 
you are going to provoke a backlash. And that's well, some by that, happened. If that was how it worked, then the amazing like transformation, you know, according to, you know, just to use your terms. I mean, we have we've completely flipped the script in the city on encampments and sweeps are happening all the time, almost every single day. It's, I mean, astonishing number of encampment removals, far more than uh, the former mayor was doing before COVID. So by that token, I mean, you know, the, the way should be clear for something like this because we've recalibrated and we're now sweeping everybody. So, I, uh, you I, know, I, at what point is it going to be recalibrated enough that we can actually, you know, try something innovative um, in in the harm reduction space, you know, as opposed to just punishing people? Um, and I and I do think we are. I I do think when you are uh, punishing people for uh, and throwing people in jail for shoplifting, um, and the shoplifting is to feed an addiction, I I actually do think you are punishing the addiction. Um, you may disagree. Uh, you may think that there is uh, such thing as you know a, a homeless addicted person who uh, you know relies on their own uh, their own resources, but. I mean, the fact is people are people are pushed into the criminal legal system uh, and pushed into crime by by often by addiction. And and, yeah. and that's I mean, that's just a fact. So yeah, but to me, to me, that is crossing the line between compassion to uh, into enabling behavior. There has to be friction somewhere. You can't say say to addicted people if you're if you're a heroin addict like I used to be and say, hey, you get a if you go and steal every day to feed your heroin habit. There, there won't be any punitive consequences for that because you're addicted. Because all that does, who's going to ever escape addiction under those conditions? I mean, if that had been the, the the case when I was an addict in the '90s, I'm not sure I'd, I'd friggin' be here today. You're saying right? you were you were scared straight? I kind of was by, in by the, some by ways. The threat of punishment. Look, you were. Yeah, you were, I, um... yeah. I got I got busted right, and I I spent a, a, a thank thankfully only a day in jail. You know, and that was a a, a pretty sobering, if I can use that word, uh, experience. Um, so it wasn't that, uh, look, I, I think back then we had gone too far under the punitive side and we were, you know, arresting lots and lots of low-level drug users. I was one of them, uh, you know, and, and I don't think that was a great solution, but I think the pendulum swung too far the other way in places like Seattle. And so, and, and it's leading to some of this backlash stuff that we're seeing in the city and even more so in the suburbs and outside the city. Quick counterpoint, um, as I as I wrote about in my book, um, so, you know, if you've read it, that's, it's not a secret. Um, I, What's the uh, title busted. and is it available on Amazon, Erica? That's <laughs> such a great question. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's called Quitter, a uh, memoir of drinking, relapse and recovery, and it is available anywhere books are sold. Um, and as I wrote about, um, I got busted, though not arrested, and I didn't, you know, spend any time in jail or a cop car or anything, but I got busted. Uh, very embarrassingly for stealing wine from a local grocery store. And uh, you know what I did? I, uh, you know, filled out my paperwork in the back of the QFC. I walked out the door and I went across the street to the liquor store and I bought some more liquor. And that was in, I believe, 2009. Um, and I got sober uh, at the beginning of 2015. So I was definitely not scared straight. Um, I don't think um, scared straight works. Uh, I, I think that people well, who get sober after getting busted, uh, you know, that's that's just a precipitating event. You got to have that internal motivation to change. Yeah, yeah. And let's be really clear here. I'm not saying like, oh, my God, Sandeep got busted. And the next day he gave up, you know, or he came out of jail, a new man. And, you know, I mean, that's that's bullshit, right? That doesn't happen, right? I, I came out of jail and I was junk sick and I ran down and I 
got myself some dope and I got high, right? I mean, I mean, I wasn't scared straight, right? But what I am saying is there has to be some friction in the system somewhere when people are in the throes of addiction. There has to be some consequences for their bad behaviors that I, that I think help prod or push them back towards trying to get the hell but wait a sec, Sunny, I had consequences. So I went to one I of these. I went to community court, uh, which is something that, you know, <laughs> that that uh, that our, you know, current um, uh, city attorney uh, is trying to push people away from yeah. it and to, to make inaccessible to, to some people. Um, to, to and pro- I did prolific I did drinkers some, like you. I did community <laughs> service that was actually that is was actually fucking grueling with a hangover and um, <laughs> which I had all the time. And it sucked and, you know, and it still didn't work. So I, I don't, I don't think that, uh, that we have consequences that are, you know, uh, uh, actually effective in getting people to not be addicted. There's just, there's no such thing. All right. We're going to have to agree to disagree at the end of this episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Seattle Nice. Uh, she's Erica Barnett. Uh, thanks, Erica. Thanks, David. He's Sandeep Kashik. Hey, I didn't really think I was going to be talking about my addiction anyway <laughs> yeah thank you for sharing thank you for sharing uh and yeah. and thank thanks to everybody for listening thanks everybody for donating on our patreon account and for communicating with us on twitter it's at real seattle nice at twitter and just everybody thank you so much for listening mm-hmm.